0: Philippians chapter 3. In the last chapter, Paul reminded the believers that they should focus on their own salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work. That's in Philippians chapter 2. Today we look at rejoice in the Lord. God has a plan for each believer. Each believer has a part in God's plan and God has a plan for each believer. Let me make this personal. God has a plan for you. We often think in big picture, we think about we want to evangelize the whole world, and sometimes when we think about the big picture, we forget the detail in the specific picture. Just as we want to reach the whole world, therefore, really we want to reach our neighbor with the gospel in the same way we think well God has a plan God's working out his plan what I want you to remember this morning is that God has a plan for you each of you children God has a plan for you you're not waiting to get big enough to be used by God God uses children you as parents you're not waiting for this coronavirus to get over so that you can be used by God God has a plan for you And he can use you right now. You see, this doctrine is really important. It impacts the way that you think and make decisions. It impacts the way that you approach life. It impacts the way that you view your circumstances. When you begin to realize God has a plan and you are part of God's plan. So Paul challenges the believers in chapter 2, verse 12. He says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, because God is working in you. The key words there are fear and trembling. It makes us recognize the seriousness of what God is talking about. This isn't just something that we acknowledge with our head and move on. He's saying, Understand, God has a plan for you, and you are part of God's plan. Therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You see, we want to get it right. We want to do it right, knowing that God is directing our desires, and God is directing the events in our lives. So today we come to chapter 3. And we find, he says, Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision, for we are the circumcision which which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now with that in mind, here's the focus. God is at work, therefore... Rejoice in the Lord. Paul had made his major point of the fact that God is at work and God is is using different individuals to accomplish His will, and then he talks about Titus. He talks about Epaphroditus and how they had gone through different things and how God had used them. And then he comes to this statement. He says, "Rejoice in the Lord." You're here on purpose. Your position is secure. You have a life mission. And this doctrine of the fact that God is in charge and you are part of God's plan and God has a plan for you, that teaching, that doctrine, should impact the way we live our lives. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come before you and we look at your word, we ask that you would open our minds, help us to understand And then I pray, Father, that you would help us not to be distracted. There's so many things that we can do. We multitask so often that we begin to think that multitasking is the only way that we can do. And Lord, I pray that our time with you would be single-focused, that we would set aside our texting, our other searches, and that we, for just the next few minutes, would give our whole attention to your word. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Philippians gives us the secret of how to have joy even when you're in the middle of trouble. You see, Paul saw in each circumstance that God was in it, that God was up to something, and that God was up to something good. Paul could see, even in the middle of trouble, that God was in this and that God was up to something, he wasn't caught off guard by it, and that God was going to work through it for good. It's easy to get wrapped up in things. Not just tangible things, you know, the things that we can touch and feel, but also intangible things such as reputation and fame and achievement. We become burdened and overwhelmed trying to measure up, trying to prove that we are something. In Paul's case, things, he was struggling with things that were intangible, such as religious achievements, a feeling of self-satisfaction, and his morality, that he did things the right way. You know, today we can be snared by tangibles and intangibles, and as a result, we lose our joy. A key word in our text today is actually found in verse 7, which we hadn't read that far yet, but Paul makes this statement, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. And the key word here that I want us to focus on is the word counted To count means to elevate or to to assess the value of something. Today, it's very easy to get so busy that we never stop to weigh the values and the things that control our lives. Maybe for some of us right now, this has been a real serious wake-up call as for what we really are and what we're going through because our usual routine, our driving schedules cannot be fulfilled. Maybe for some of you, you're finding you can be a workaholic at home just as easily as you can be a workaholic when you're going out to your place of business. You see, as we focus on what is your life, what is the value of your life, what's of value to you, Paul said it's going to be important that we count, that we consider what we say is our treasure. And that's the reason why he begins, Having told you, God has a plan for you, and you, you are part of God's plan. He then says, therefore, finally, rejoice in the Lord. That was his point. Dr. Wiersbe, Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary, Be Joyful, makes this statement. He says, in Paul's case, the things he was living for before he knew Christ seemed to be very commendable. A righteous life, obedience to the law, defense of the religion of his fathers, Paul had enough morality to keep him out of trouble, but not enough righteousness to get him into heaven. He had to lose his religion to find salvation. Paul was measuring his life with the wrong measuring stick. God's measuring stick is based on Jesus Christ. Paul was measuring his life by what he had accomplished and by his reputation. You see, Paul's going to begin this section for us in verses 1 through 7. He's going to begin this section with some warnings that can steal your joy as a believer. True joy is found in a relationship, not in a reputation. So he begins with a people warning. First, he begins by saying, finally, he said, to conclude what I taught you in chapter 2, to conclude this thought, so that you put it all together. He says, because God is at work in you, because God has a plan for you, he says, rejoice in the Lord, not in the horizontal things that are happening around you. He says, don't rejoice. Don't let people be the thing that is your your joy. Don't let things be the, the point that is your joy. He says, to write this again, is good for you and it's not offensive to me I don't mind repeating now it's interesting if you look and go through this book you don't find that he has given a command up to this point where he says rejoice in the Lord Multiple times he has modeled what it means to rejoice. I imagine as he read this, when people came to this point in the letter, when they were reading it, and when when Paul uh, had the person reading Paul's letter says, Finally, rejo- my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. I'm sure some people were saying, Yeah, well, does Paul always rejoice? Is Paul always happy? Is Paul always joyful in what he's going through? Maybe at that time Epaphroditus would say, yes you know when he said at the beginning he said oh don't worry about me i wish you could understand that even though i'm in jail even though i'm imprisoned even though i'm not free that this is working out for the cause of the gospel epaphroditus says i was there that's exactly the way he acts In fact, he is so joyful, that's the reason why the guards are curious about what he's going through, and they hear the gospel, and now Caesar's palace is filled with guards that are believers. There is no other way this could have ever taken place. Epaphroditus says he really lives what he means. Maybe about that time a big burly man would stand up in the group and go, hey, you remember several years ago when Paul and Silas were beaten and brought into my jail? Do you remember? They were bleeding, and I immediately took them in, and I put them in stocks and bonds. I bound them, I locked the door, and you know what they did when I did all that to them? They were singing. It bothered me all night long. Finally, there was an earthquake. It should have terrified everyone. And there, as the dust is settling from all the rocks being shaken we hear Paul and Silas singing away. They genuinely, that was what drew me to Christ. They genuinely rejoiced in the Lord. They, they knew God had a plan for them, and they were a part of God's plan. Oh, I know that. So, the man in the back says, but what about what's just happened to my family? You know they came. And they took my daughter and they sold her. I'm sure at that point, maybe Epaphroditus would say, Oh, we weep with you. We weep with you. Yet, your circumstances can't take away what you have in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. You see, Paul, throughout the whole book, has been talking about what brings him joy. In verse 2, he gives this triple warning. He's not talking about different groups of people. He's giving different descriptions of the same group of people. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. Now, just to give you a little background, remember the gospel came to the Jews first, Then the gospel went to the Samaritans, and the Jews didn't like that so much, but it was okay because Samaritans were part Jewish. But Peter then took the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, and this created an uproar. There were many people that said, you can't be saved until you are first a Jew. They had to meet certain work requirements. They had to look like a Jew. They had to take on the characteristics of a Jew. And these people are called Judaizers. All right, maybe that will help you to just kind of put these pieces together. It's those who try to mix the law and grace. You know, there's some who try to do that even today. Some who try to mix works with grace. They'll tell you, you've got to do certain things before you can be saved. Well, Paul is warning them. He says, beware of these kind of people. These people are like dogs. Now, you've seen Cheyenne break into the sessions often, but the reality is he's not talking about a cute pet. He's not talking about something that lives in your home. He's talking about those dirty scavengers that would be out in the streets that do not build up, but they try to destroy, they try to kill he says beware of these kinds of people who are mean-spirited who are trying to steal away what you have. These were people that would these were dogs that would carry a bad infection, some kind of a disease, and he was saying that's what these people are. They're trying to bring a disease into this beauty of what you have called salvation in Jesus Christ, the gospel. He says, beware of dogs, and he says, beware of evil workers. He's talking about people that are trying to do an evil work. Now, this is fascinating because the Jewish community prided themselves in doing good works. They would say, we were doing all these things the right way, but the reality is these good works are really become evil works. Why? Because they are trying to prove that they can work their way to heaven. Now, as a believer, your, your eternal security... Your eternal destiny is secure, but the reality is you can lose your joy when you begin to think that your salvation is based on your works. How good a job you're doing, how good a job someone else is not doing, or how good a job someone else is doing compared to you, and therefore you're feeling um, inadequate, insufficient, They glorify the worker rather than Jesus Christ. Yet we know from Ephesians chapter 2, it's by grace we are saved. Titus chapter 3 tells us it's not by works of righteousness, but it's according to God's mercy that we are saved. Then he gives the last one. He says, beware of the concision. Now this is a word play that actually worked better in the original language than it does in ours, and that is, The Jews said you must be circumcised, which was a cutting of the flesh. And he's saying, beware of the concision, which is mutilation. It's a pun on this word of circumcision. And he's saying, beware of people who try to mutilate your salvation. Beware of people who are trying to make your salvation something, cut it up to where it's not as it it should be. Some people would say circumcision or baptism or the Lord's Supper or tithing or any of these other practices are also important for you to get to heaven. You need to do certain things. Jesus Christ plus something else. And Paul is saying, rejoice in the Lord. Verse 3, we see the true Christian's focus. You see, we worship God through the Spirit. Paul boasted in Jesus Christ. He had no confidence in his own ability to do things. And yet what's interesting, Paul then goes further, and he not only gives a warning about these kind of people, but he gives a personal experience warning. Look at verse 4. Paul says, though I might have confidence in the flesh, if any other man think that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. And then he's going to give this listing. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisees, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. That's almost his drop the mic moment. He's saying, that's it. I've covered it. I've got everything done. Paul says, you know, I want you to recognize something here. Something that I recognize. You know, probably one of the quickest ways to get a sick feeling in your stomach is to get a letter in the mail from the IRS that says that the auditor is coming to check your records. You can do everything right, and you're still nervous. Why? Because you're afraid something's going to be wrong in your records. Well, Paul, in this section... Becomes the auditor of his own life. He looks at everything he has done. He checks its value. And notice what Paul says, all right? What about my relationship to the nation? I was born into a pure Hebrew family. I was circumcised on the proper day. I'm not a proselyte. I'm a descendant. I'm not a descendant from Esau or Ishmael. I am a Hebrew. Then he says... And I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin was Jacob's favorite son, born to Jacob's favorite wife. Benjamin was the tribe that had the first king in Israel. Benjamin was the tribe that was faithful to David during Absalom's rebellion. If he had anything to be proud of, he said, me, me. My relationship to the nation, I am a Jew through and through. I ought to be good before God. But he says, not only before my nation, but before the law. Look at verses 5 and 6. And there he says, "Circumcise the eighth day of the tribe of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. A Pharisee had reached the very top of the religious experience. This was not a term of derision or hypocrisy as we know it today, but he had orthodox doctrine. He tried to fulfill all of his obligations faithfully. I couldn't say that. Yet Paul said, look, this is what I've done for my whole life. Then in verse 6, Paul's relationship to Israel's enemies and to those he thought were God's enemies. He says concerning zeal. Was I passionate about my relationship to the Israel people and to Judaism? He says, I persecuted the church. I was serious about what I did. I lived what I claimed to believe. He said, I persecuted the followers of that pretender, Jesus Christ. I assisted in the stoning of Stephen. I held their coats. Don't worry, folks, your coats are safe with me. Go ahead and stone Stephen, and I'll take care of you. He led the attacks against the church in general. How could a man like Saul of Tarsus be so wrong and yet be so sincere? You see, he was using the wrong measuring stick. He was trying to measure himself by what man said rather than looking at what God says. Now, he wasn't the only one that struggled with that. We have the rich young ruler. We have the Pharisee in one of Christ's parables. We have someone outwardly obeying. You see, Paul was a success if you looked at him from the outside, but Paul didn't stop to think about all the inward sins he was committing. Sinful attitudes and appetites are just as wrong as sinful actions, according to Matthew chapter 5. So we begin realizing, Paul's saying, oh, please understand, not only have I warned you about these people that are going to try to steal your joy by saying, you got to live up to a certain uh, requirement. If you don't live this way, you're not good enough. And then Paul said, he, not only does he warn him about the people, but he says, let me give you a personal warning from my own life. He said, that could steal my joy. But now he says, No. Now I rejoice in the Lord. Now it's the relationship with Jesus Christ that matters. Now I live my life for him. You see, it's easy to begin to take value in what church we attend, on the missions trips that we have taken, or the things we have accomplished, uh, or the life that we live. When we begin to make our identity in who we are or what we have accomplished accomplished, we will lose our joy as Christians. Maybe today I'm talking to some who do not doubt that you've received Christ as your Savior, but your Christian life is no fun. Could it be that you've been trying to live a certain life rather than enjoy the relationship with Jesus Christ? You know, the people that you hang around with, the people you run with, are going to impact what you do. Enjoy Jesus Christ and you'll begin to find that your life changes. The things you used to do, you just don't do them anymore. You see, real joy comes when we recognize our security in Christ and that God has a plan for our lives and is working out that plan and we are part of God's plan. This pandemic has not sidetracked you. God is still at work in you, through you, and it's for good. Good for the overall does not mean that you won't have hardships present. Some of you are really struggling with the amount of the quantity of time you're having with your family. You're not used to this and this is hard. Some of you are struggling with what you're seeing possibly in your children right now and you thought things were going better but the more time you spend with them the more you recognize there's still work to be done. Don't lose heart. Don't say that you have been sidetracked, that your main purpose in life has somehow been put on hold. Oh, no. God is working. And God has a plan for you, and you are part of God's plan. So he tells us, Rejoice in the Lord, not in your circumstances or your works, just the Lord. It's our relationship with the Lord that brings joy, not our accomplishments. Christians, have you become proud of your reputation? To look to what you are doing for satisfaction? It's only your relationship with Jesus Christ that will bring joy. I want to end by just telling you a story of a man maybe some of you know. I know he's a man that I've known for many years in the late 1970s out of college, and a serious music composer and teacher, Ron Hamilton was beginning was beginning to have trouble seeing his music students. They were blurry so in 1978 he went to the doctor and the doctor said he had found cancer in his left eye. Either if the cancer had spread past his eye and into his brain There's nothing the doctor could do, or the doctor may be able to remove the eye and spare his life. Well, as a man in his 20s, neither prospect sounded very good. The doctor went in, the doctor found that the cancer had not gone out of the eye, and the doctor removed Ron's left eye. He came out of surgery, they had a patch over his eye, and they were debating what he would do. Do you try to find a false eye? And after quite a bit of time, Ron said, you know, I'm just going to wear a patch. And as people were seeing the patch on him, they would joke about him being a pirate. And he took on the name Patch the Pirate, and he and his wife were working with a man named Frank Garlock. And Frank was selling sheet music, had a store there in South Carolina, but they weren't producing much for children. So Ron and his wife Shelly began putting together a lot of children's music, kind of pieced it together, kind of patched it together, and made it patch the Pirate. Interestingly enough, how God was working in all of that, do you know the day they woke up to do the recordings, his wife, Shelly, had laryngitis? And so when she went in to the recording studio, she had this squeaky voice, and that was the day they decided she would be called Sissy Siegel. And so as they began building all the different characters of what was to become a life mission, Oh, they wrote Christmas cantatas, and they wrote a number of different things, but the thing probably they were most known for was the Patch the Pirate series, and for the next 38 years, they produced a new episode nearly every year. But not everything after that went well for Ron. In 2013, Ron's son who had been well-known in the Patch the Pirate series, killed himself after years of struggle with mental health issues. And, you know, the family took their public struggle and acknowledged the mental health issues that are going on around us. And, you know, God used that deep valley to reach people all around the world and has opened new hearts to the message of Jesus Christ. Most recently now, Ron battles the onset of dementia. Shelley, in saying how hard this is to watch a spouse go through this slow process of just not being able to remember anything, quoted Nancy Reagan when she said, Having a loved one with dementia is like Uh, Facing dementia with someone you love is like a long goodbye. You see, God is still using them, but the path has been difficult. Shelley wrote, God is good through every trial and test. God is good, and I know his way is best. Even when I cannot see the purpose of his plan, still I understand God is good. Ron summarized his response to God's working through his life with this song.
1: God never moves without purpose or plan. When trying his servant and molding a man, give thanks to the Lord, though your testing seems long. In darkness he giveth a song. He was
0: writing that right after... His eye surgery.
1: The second verse is I could not see through the shadows ahead, so I looked at the cross of my Savior instead. I bowed to the will of the Master that day. Then peace came and tears fled away. You see,
0: he didn't know what was happening, but what he chose to do in fact, what Shelley has said they've chosen to do in each of these heartaches through their lives is to rejoice in the Lord. To remember that God is, has a plan for them. And they are part of God's plan. That God has not forgotten them. And there are bigger things that are being accomplished Many, many people around the world have heard the gospel because Ron lost his eye. Many more people have heard the gospel as they acknowledged a personal family heartache and reached out to people who were hurting. And now as they're going through this dementia... they're trusting god the last verse to that is now i can see testing comes from above god strengthens his children and purges in love my father knows best and i trust in his care through purging more fruit i will bear the verse the chorus goes o oh, rejoice in the lord He makes no mistake. He knoweth the end of the path that I take. For when I am tried and purified, I shall come forth as gold. How's your focus this morning? Are you discouraged with your circumstances or your failures? Maybe, and my heart goes out to all these seniors in high school or graduates from college, who didn't get to finish that year. Have you become angry and bitter about what's taking place in your life? Maybe more so, maybe some of you as parents are struggling with bitterness because you wanted your children to go through this. This was the major event in their life, and now they can't go through that. How will you respond? We can weep together over the disappointments, but don't make that the thing. That determines the value of your life. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in Him. Allow Him to direct your paths. Maybe some of you listening today, you've worked very hard like Paul. You've tried to live a good life. You've tried to do things you ought to do. This month during Ramadan, They're supposed to be giving. They're supposed to be looking for ways to help other people. But you see, it's fun to give. But that's not the way we get right with God. You see, your work's righteousness will only bring frustration and discouragement, and it never ends in security and joy. You'll never know if you've done enough, because the reality is you can't do enough. In the end, works kind of righteousness brings death. It separates from God because you see there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we can be saved. Turn to Jesus today. Accept what Jesus did as full payment for your sin and begin enjoying that relationship with him and you will find that your life begins to change because who you spend time with, will impact the way you live. Have you ever placed your faith in a relationship with Jesus Christ? Do it today. A relationship with your Savior, Redeemer, and Friend. For those of you who know Christ, remember, rejoice in the Lord. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing how important this is, knowing how valuable it is, because God is at work in your life. And you are part of God's work.